His disciples remembered that the scripture says, My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Now when Jesus talked with his disciples about one day rising from death, he did so by comparing himself to a building destroyed and then raised up again. He was pointing his disciples, pointing his disciples to, and, and anyone who would listen to, something they could actually physically and visibly see, even touch. Jesus was with his disciples quite a bit around the temple from time to time, especially as we read the Gospel of John. And this is something they could see. And so he, he pointed to this and said, you could see this now. This is what will happen. They could touch a temple. You could say that Jesus was using a concrete metaphor Talk about the temple, if you will. It's a terrible pun. Anyone get that? Uh, Concrete, it was built, yeah. Please don't tear me down with your silence, but build me up. I could keep going. I could really bulldoze through this. All right. I know. As we reflect on Jesus' resurrection, thank you, by the way, for shaking your head. So a few of you over there, please don't continue. But as, as we reflect, though, on Jesus' resurrection, on the resurrection, the visual Jesus gives us, about a temple being, being torn down and raised up, begins to make more sense. Uh, first of all, after a couple nights in the tomb, Jesus didn't just float up on the third day. He didn't sort of, sort of get in all these atoms and ethereally go up to the sky to be with his father forever. He physically rose, leaving behind linen cloths, a stone being rolled out of sight, and the disciples were later able to even touch him touch his scars, touch his wounds that killed him. So to compare himself to the temple, something they could even touch and certainly see would remind any follower of Jesus that their their destiny would be to one day physically see the Son of God and even touch out, reach out and touch the Son of God, just like they could see and reach out to this building, this, this temple. But there's a more important reason the Son of God compares himself to rebuilding the temple. That is because the temple represents God desiring to be with his people. That's always been God's aim, his desire, to be with his people. So the point of God creating us is that God desires to be with us. He he wanted to create beings who could freely choose to enjoy being with him forever. But God is so good and gracious, knowing that we are, we are frail, we are finite, we are weak, we are limited. He visibly, even physically, makes himself known over and over and over and over again to his people. We can know how important this is, but sometimes we forget how important someone physically and visibly making themselves known really is. When I, growing up, I used to play a lot of sports, 
uh, tennis, golf, baseball, basketball were my main ones. And always coming out of the locker room, especially for baseball, I would come out of the, or basketball, come out of the locker room. One of the first things I did without trying to be noticed was, was recognize and look for where my parents were sitting, particularly my dad, because he traveled a good bit. Wanted to see where he was. And, and just seeing my dad out there helped me, give me that reassurance, that confidence, that sense of, yes, somebody is for me. Somebody is with me. There's a couple families who would normally be here on Easter Sunday this morning, but they're at the Carifta, the Carifta swimming games in, in Bahamas. It's a sort of Caribbean swimming uh, medals, and it's like the Olympics for some of these, these kids. And I, I, I just think about the whole family being there, and the kids coming out, they're approaching the starting blocks where they're going to do their 100 meters or 400 meter relays or whatever it might be. And I know some of those kids, they're looking. One of the things they're doing, they're looking for their parents. They're looking for their mom. They're looking for their dad. Now, of course, a lot of them are teenagers, so they're never going to let that be known, right? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, good. Right? They're never going to say anything probably till they're 30, maybe 35, maybe at their wedding, something like that. I don't know. But there's something about seeing someone who loves you and cares for you there, not just knowing it, but seeing it. And I want to give you then a brief history of God visibly revealing himself to us frail people. There's almost a history of the Bible and of God's story. But first there's the Garden of Eden. We're told in Genesis 3 that God would regularly walk with Adam and Eve in the garden, in the the cool of the evening. And what, what must that have been like? What must have been like to, what do you say on an evening stroll with God as his, as his feet keep lock and step rustling alongside yours? I don't even know. But, but God keeps doing this in his people's lives. When, they're just, when he's just outside of Egypt, God reveals himself to Moses through a burning bush. Upon leaving Egypt with his people, God reveals himself through a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And that God is personified in that Exodus 13, 22 says that neither that cloud or that pillar departed from the people. After finding a place to settle for a little bit outside of Egypt, God visibly revealed himself by staying in an oversized tent called a tabernacle. And it's there that God's people could go and, and meet with him. Exodus 40, 35 says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle because God is so gracious, again, to give us a visible expression of himself, something you could, you could see and sometimes reach out and even touch. Also, there's the Ark of the Covenant, a large box which rested in the most holy and sacred space inside that tabernacle. Wherever the Ark went, so went the glory and the presence of God. Eventually, the ark was laid in the temple, <clears throat> the temple, and the temple becomes God's physical and visible home on earth. It's like his settling place. There's no more wandering for God's people and no more wandering in a, in a tabernacle for God either. He decides to make his home with his people in this brick-and-mortar temple. So, so whether you would have lived from Dan in the north to Beersheba, all the way in the south of Israel. You would make regular pilgrimage to the temple as a reminder, as an assurance. Yes, I, I see the temple. Yahweh is there. God is for us. I can see it with my own eyes. And it was a great comfort and assurance to God's people to be reminded of that again and again and again. 
Imagine that. You're approaching the temple. You're getting near God. And it fills you with a sense of awe and wonder, but comfort. Now, we worship God here in a performing arts theater. So it's a little bit different. We lease this place out. We're not even here during the week. And there's some interesting things that happen here during the week. Here in this place, it's hard for us to imagine comfort and assurance coming from being near a building. Did any of you guys grow up in, in small or rural communities where there was like one or two churches? Okay, there's a few of you here. For you and probably everyone else you knew, that was the place. That was the place for worship. Sometimes that was the center of the town. A lot of times churches functioned that way throughout the Western world for, for many, many centuries. And that was the place you can know that worship, comfort, assurance, if I go there, I feel like I'm at home. Imagine that place for you and then imagine it being burned to the ground. Such was the case for God's people. After enjoying comfort, assurance, presence for hundreds of years, God takes away the visible place of his presence with his people because for hundreds of years, they've been saying no to God. They've been saying, it's great that we have this building. It's great that God is near us, but God, we really don't want to have anything to do with you in our lives. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. And so God says, I'm not going to be mocked in this relationship. I'm going to take away the thing that's not only most precious to you, but precious to me. So God God allows them to be deported and enslaved by the nation of Babylon. Then they get to return after 70 years, and they get to begin rebuilding this temple. There was opposition to this work. They got tired. They got worn down. They got discouraged. And eventually, they just gave up. For about five or seven years, they started the work, and then for five or seven years, they left there, left the building. Sometimes we see that in Cayman. People will get something started, boom, it's gone. And people leave it. Five to seven years passed. So God sends a prophet named Haggai to encourage his people, to inspire his people to start this work of building a house for God again. We, don't know, we know almost nothing else about Haggai other than this message that he brings. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Haggai 1, verse 1. And we're going to read through chapter 2, verse 9. Haggai 1.1, it's going to be on page 673 if you're using one of the Bibles we provided. If you have your own Bible and you're looking through there, look for Zephaniah and Zechariah, and it's right in between those two. Look for the Zs or the Zs. All right, and go right in between those. You'll find Haggai. It's a two-chapter book, so it's easy to miss. Page 673, Haggai 1.1-2.9. And what we're going to see in our passage is the point, the problem, and the plan. But let me get to reading it first. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Well, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. 
And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. And then Zerubbabel, he's the guy who was leading God's people back from Babylon to help rebuild the temple. This guy, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of God's people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. And the people learned, or sorry, the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king, was king of Persia at that time. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations. The treasures of all the nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. So what we see in this passage, uh, the point, the problem, and the plan. The God's whole point, which is just reviewed, is he wants to be with his people, right? And we hear this over again, over and over, right? I am with you. I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. God's point throughout history, not to mention this passage we just read, is I want to be with you. I desire to be with you. The temple has been the permanent way in which he visibly shows himself to his people so they know In fact, the I am is with them. But there is a problem. And this is the problem. First of all, the point is that God desires to be with us. The problem is that we don't desire to be with God. That's the problem. We don't desire to be with God. Let me clarify this a little bit. We, We do instinctively want God around. I mean, you're here on Sunday morning after all, right? It's Easter Sunday. You must have some interest in that, all of us. We want God to be part of our lives for sure. But loving God by its very nature 
It's ascribing to him our, our highest priority, right? Uh, the most passionate love, the greatest loyalty, because God is the greatest, the most, the highest. It's who God is by definition. So to love God, to want God, is to want him to be the highest, the greatest, the most in your life. There's no other way. That's why he's called Lord, sovereign, ruler, king. So when we say, man, I want God to be part of my life, even a big part, we often mean, and I've been there before, I put myself in that category, we often mean, I want the blessings of God. I want the comfort of God. I even want the church, the community of God, but not necessarily God, the Lord, the sovereign, the ruler, the king. Because that has implications for my life. Something like that seems to be going on with God's people here. God plays a part, but he's not the priority of their lives. A part, but not the priority. Look with me, if you would, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of Israel. This was a popular saying in this time. We know that because the, the tense of the Hebrew verb translated say is, is um, it, it, it means that it's ongoing. It means that they are continually saying this. God's people, this is kind of a phrase, uh, we all know it's not time yet. We all know we can wait a little longer. And this became a kind of phrase people would say to each other. They'd look by, they'd look at the ruins of the temple and be like, eh, not time yet. We can wait. And yet, verse 4, God says, I love this, it's so challenging, isn't it? Well, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the ho- this house lies in ruins? God's saying, like, is it, is it okay for you to be not only building your house, but redecorating it? Like, new wallpaper, new wood, nice new tile, and yet I'm much lower on the priority list. We fast forward a little bit. Acknowledge that Jesus is, going, is the temple who is raised again. We begin to see how this applies to us. We can just put off making a decision about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because we say, now's not the time. There will always be time in the future. Be fine. I've contended in the past, uh, in an old sermon, you can look at it online, a sermon called, Don't Be an Atheist Because of the Resurrection, that there's more and better historical evidence and support of the resurrection than any other miracle in the Bible. The evidence is so good for it. And if that's true, if a man we know lived on this earth and physically defeated death, that changes everything. It should. If someone defeated death, it should change our lives. We want to get to know that person. We want to get to understand them. We want to hear what they have to say. And yet some of us have continued to put off making this decision because, hey, there's still time. I'm still young, relatively, right? All this while we run around making improvements, remodeling. Look at verse 9. While each of you busies himself with his own house, remodeling or building is a perfect example. Because anyone who's built a home or been part of a remodeling project knows you, you often put that as your highest priority, right? Your greatest loyalty, your, your most commitment goes into it to finally get that tile in, right? To finally get the countertop done, the light fixtures. And you wanted so much in the kitchen. 
to, to get in there so you can actually see, to, to ins- go home. I want to inspect the, the pallets of grass that have been brought for our front yard. You understand, like, you will sometimes drop anything if you've ever remodeled a home or built one yourself to get there. And that becomes our everything, our pursuit, and it did for God's people. You can apply this to many other things in our lives that become our, our grandest pursuit, our highest priority. And if we keep on pursuing that, God is so gracious, he will try to get our attention. If he's not our priority, he loves us enough to make sure to stop our lives from working as they should, which is incredibly frustrating. The gears grind to a halt, and you just throw up your hands. And that is God's way of saying, hey, look, I'm trying to get your attention. That's what happens here with God's people. Verses five and six, look at this. Consider your ways. You have sown much harvested little. So in your job, you've worked hard. You've put in the time, you put in the effort, you put in your talents. Nothing's come of it. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, no one is warm. You earn wages, but they seem to just disappear. Almost like your wallet has holes in it. Have you guys ever felt your life that way? Maybe you feel that way now. And it could just be that God is saying, hey, I really love you, and I'm trying to get your attention. I'm trying to show you that there is a higher priority than what you're pursuing and what you're putting number one in your life right now. Consider your ways, he says. He says it twice. I want to say this. Whatever you love most, be it your family, your hobby, your sport, your, your work, your community, your home, your kids, Maybe it's the things you like to entertain yourself with. Maybe it's even a home improvement show like Fixer Upper or Property Brothers. God is not saying whatever you love, to love or desire those things less. He's saying to desire me more. These aren't bad things. These aren't things that we should start saying, oh, I'll just cut this out of my life. I should cut this out of my life. That's not what it is. God is saying love and desire me more. In 1941, C.S. Lewis one of, my, one of my Christian heroes, he, he delivered a sermon called The Weight of Glory. You ever get a chance to read it? It is a phenomenal sermon. And in that sermon, he brilliantly illustrates a point that would, that would permanently, permanently help me get past this, this misconception I had about Christianity. And it was a big one. Here's what he said. He says, if, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord far, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. Here's what he says. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. As a Christian, I thought for a long time, well, being, being a Christian means I cut out pleasures and desires and passions out of my life so I can focus on Jesus. And that's not what Christianity is all about. It's about finding a greater pleasure, an infinite pleasure, a pleasure that can actually satisfy your souls above and beyond what you could possibly imagine and letting that fill your life, enlarge your heart. I, I was magnetically attracted to Jesus during my teenage years, but I had all these desires, not just because I was a teenager, all right, I understand there's hormonal things going on there too. But not just because of that, but I, God made me that way. In the words of George Costanza, I yearn, I crave, I'm one of those kind of people. 
I felt quietly ashamed of that until reading Lewis. This is me. My desires are not too weak. They're not too strong. They're too weak. But what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about wanting God more? A person can't make himself or herself want, desire God more. In the case of the Israelites, they couldn't make themselves desire God to the point where they'd actually start doing what he says and build this temple. But thankfully, God has a plan. God did something and does something about it. This is the plan. God rebuilds the temple slash Jesus slash us. Because <laughs> it all kind of goes together. You'll see how. God rebuilds the temple slash Jesus slash us. I want us to see two things from verses 12 forward. I want to see just two things I want to point out, okay? Haggai's prophecy, which takes place in 520 B.C., points us towards a more glorious temple, God's presence made visible through a risen Savior. All of these writing prophets we've been reading about point us towards a Savior, someone who can actually rescue us from ourselves, from sin, and from death. Haggai points us towards a risen Savior. Let's piece this together. So we've been talking about every time God reveals himself to God's people. There's all these times God reveals himself, right? Garden Eden and onward, right? You tracking with me? But every time he reveals himself, we human beings keep ruining it. We demonstrate that we desire weaker pleasures more and God less. We'd rather go after other pleasures more, God less, over and over again. Adam and Eve desire the weaker pleasures of power and knowledge. So God says, sorry, you're banished from the cool of the garden. Tabernacles are forsaken. Arks get stolen and lost. Temples crumble and lie in ruin because we've chosen to desire something else more than God. But thankfully, God does something that can never be ruined. God visibly reveals himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Our decision to live life our own way, pursue these weaker pleasures, that ruined Jesus. If you ever wonder why did Jesus go to the cross, because we have higher priorities and pleasures and passions than God. And that's what ruins Jesus. That's what tears him to our sin. It was our sin that nailed him there. But God physically raised him from the dead, glorified, indestructible. And here's the best news of all. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we're going to be saved. Romans 10, 9. It's a wonderful promise. That's all you have to do to know Jesus and for your life to be rebuilt. Now, you might ask the question, man, it would be great to have Jesus here now. Why don't we have, we don't even have the temple either? There's no Jesus, there's no temple. What's the visible sign then that God is with me? There's no temple today or tomorrow. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus predicts this in Mark 13. About 40 years after his death, he predicts that the temple building was going to be destroyed, never to be rebuilt. There's no temple tomorrow either. Revelation 21, 22, there is no temple building in heaven. Why is that? Here's amazing news, that through the resurrection of Jesus, you who believe get to be God's temple. Let me say this again. Through the resurrection of Jesus, you who believe get to be God's temple. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. And, he, and, he, and in wonderment and amazement, he says, 
Don't you see that you are the temple of the living God? His spirit dwells within you? That is true for anyone who believes that Jesus has risen from the dead. My guy is pointing to God's presence made visible. That's why he says in verse 7, I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Christ in us. So the first thing we need to see is that 500 years earlier, Haggai is pointing to the fact, hey, God's presence made visible and indwelling through a risen Savior. And Jesus says this in the video we watched earlier, right? Second thing, this is a God-sized rebuild. This is only something that God can do in our lives. The Jewish people couldn't make themselves desire God more by rebuilding his temple. God had to do something in their lives. They had to start caring about God again. How do you make yourself care about something? It's impossible, right? And yet people, especially the people closest to us in our lives, say, just do something. Just care about me. Just love me. People are screaming it out in different ways. How do you produce that desire? You cannot on your own. And so we read in verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the spirit of Joshua. He stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of God's people. First that had to happen, and then we read that they came and they worked. Another Old Testament book describes a temple being rebuilt like this, Ezra 6.14. The elders, and this will be up on the screen, the elders of the Jews built the temple and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai. In other words, God had to intervene. He had to use Haggai's words. He had to use his, his spirit. He had to use all his resources to create this desire in his people to want to be with him. I don't know about you, but I've, I've so often tried rebuilding my life on my own. Now, where has this gotten me? Something like verse 6. You've sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. It'd be easy to walk away today and say with the Jewish people of old, you know, now's not the time to get my life rebuilt, remodeled, redone. And I would point you to God's own words in verse four. Is it a time for you yourselves? Is it just a time then for you? Guys, Jesus is risen for this very moment to rebuild your life, to, to, to expand your otherwise weak desires, to make room for intimate joy, and to be transformed into a temple for the living God. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus was Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This isn't just theoretical stuff for me, friends. It's not just dusty theology because I find the Old Testament interesting. I like to connect the Old Testament with Jesus and all the new stuff. We, we have lives that need rebuilding. We have had a health crisis in my little family recently that, that has only just turned a corner. And that's why I wasn't here last week. And, and as we first faced it, Jesus' resurrection means everything. It means that no matter what, death has lost its sting. No grave can hold us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all will one day follow in his footsteps, 1 Corinthians 15. And as we now face our lives getting rebuilt by God, every day we cry out to, for, to Jesus for help and for hope. And we're confident he hears us because now we know that Jesus is resurrected and he lives to intercede for us. 
we have one who understands the frailty of being a human being and every temptation that goes along with it, sitting at the right hand of Yahweh, the great I am, who takes every request, every cry, and gives it to him who actually does something about it, him who loves to hear from the Son, and he intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25. No matter what challenges we will now face, we don't have to launch ourselves towards a Jerusalem-bound temple pilgrimage for help. We are the temples of the living God. Jesus always with us because he was raised from death. 1 Corinthians 3. This has filled us with so much help, so much hope to take the next step. And guys, our, our lives, we can see it starting to get rebuilt. The only catch is I can't hedge my bets. What do I mean by that? I can't corner off sections of my life and say, God, I, I don't want you to touch this corner. This, this section is mine. Please keep out. Don't rebuild this. This life right here, this life, it's a total rebuild. Done by the chief architect of our souls. I want to show you a picture here. This picture up on the screen is part of a celebration five or six months ago in England. This is intricately designed 120-meter replica of the city of London. 120 meters, city of London, burned to its ruins. And all these people gathering around, watching and celebrating. Who would celebrate something like that? Come on, people of London, what's going on here, right? It was planned in honor of the 350th anniversary of the Great Fire of London. In 1666, a local bakery on Pudding Lane, a fire started. Miraculously, only six people were killed, even though it would go on to spread throughout the city for four days and burn the whole place down. So I asked the question again, who would want to celebrate something like that? Why? Historians universally recognize that the 1666 fire marked a turning point of growth, resurgence, rebuilding, and prosperity for the city of London forever. Everything changed from that point on for the prospects of London not only for the people, but for the world. I read this story five or six months ago. I think it stayed with me because it's like unusually beautiful. And I say unusually beautiful because burning things is not my, it's like not my thing. But how is it that people would not only commemorate destruction, but in a sense reenact it? Because it reminds us, I think this is why I found it beautiful, it reminds us of the greatest story ever told. Jesus Christ was destroyed by our sins from the ashes of that destruction, he was raised perfect, raised perfect, beautiful, indestructible, so that we might one day follow in his footsteps. I want to encourage you, don't be afraid to let the risen Savior invade your lives. He will take the ruins of your life and rebuild it into something beautiful and indestructible if you would just let him. Let's pray. God, thank you for using the Old Testament, and all the imagery there to point towards one reality, which is Jesus. Thank you for all the ways you showed for thousands and thousands and thousands of years that you wanted to make your presence known to us because you desired to be with us. And we thank you how all of that was pointing towards Jesus Christ, the temple of the living God, whom, who we ruined with our sin, 
with our, our weak desires, our misplaced priorities. And we are sorry. And I pray for anyone here who is scared for their lives to be torn down and be rebuilt. God, I pray against fear, the fear of the enemy, that would say, you know what, it can wait. You know what, I still got a lot of life to live. You know what, I'm scared that my life will be worse off, not actually gloriously better. God, help people see the reality of and the history of what you want for them, a beautiful and indestructible life through Jesus Christ. We invite you to invade our lives today, risen Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.